everybody, and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me, as ever... Hello, I'm Sean Edry, the ever-loving thing. The ever-loving blue-eyed thing. Is it? No, Yes, well, yes, yes. They yeah. shortened that in recent uh, years. Damn them, first they shortened... Decompression! Them. Yes. Uh, anyway, this is a comic <laughs> book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seekwart, uh, the best online and unusual source for comic books news, reviews, and previews. Uh, buy their books, watch their movies, read their articles. For example, Zaki Hassan is currently doing a retrospective review on the Jurassic Park series. Not as scary as Barney, but pretty effective. And if you like all these articles and the movies and the books and this podcast, uh, you should give... You should give us via Patreon. That's right. Sequart is on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. Okay, shall we go on straight to the news? Yeah. So it's June. Yes. It's hot. Yes. People don't have the energy to be starting problems. Well, John Byrne has, but it's John Byrne. We're not going to talk about no, John Byrne. No, no. Every time John Byrne says something, I just think immediately of Abe Simpson. I was wearing an onion on my belt, which was the style at the time. And I asked them to give me five nickels. Stop before Fox sues us. <laughs> I mean, Stop so we're not going to talk Fox about John Byrne. Yes. We're not going to talk about John Byrne. But uh, IDW has made a deal with Madefire. They're working on an iOS app for their comics. They're offering 15 free trade paperbacks and access to over 3,500 comics, which I didn't even know that's how many comics IDW has. Well, they have tons of back matter because they publish all those uh, you know, reprints of classic newspapers mm. and uh, newspapers uh, newspaper strips and such. I wonder if their new acquisitions like Thrillbent and Top Shelf, Shelf are included in that deal. I assume so. Any, I tried uh, Madefire. Mm-hmm. It's a motion comic app, and oh. therefore... Well, not all of it. Some of it is regular comic, some of it is motion comic. I tried the free stuff. You know, the regular comic is regular comic. It, it's fine. The motion comic is motion comics, and therefore, not fine. Well, listen, I mean, I have to congratulate IDW for really stepping it up. They seem to be... I mean, this deal, they're moving towards digital, right? Yes. They're In addition to comicsology, in addition to... They're trying to make their material... As available as possible. First top shelf, and then the world! <laughs> it seems to be working for yes, them. Yes. So congratulations. You know, I hope that it succeeds, and I hope that they continue to uh, uh, promote themselves and, you know, do better, because they do stand a chance. For all that they are still perceived to be sort of this C-list publisher, right, in the overall industry, I think that the more they diversify and the more that they evolve... We can only benefit as readers. So, fantastic. Okay. Speaking of promotions, mm. uh, Dark Horse is doing some inside promotion work, including everybody. I think there's like nine <laughs> editors promoted up, including uh, Dave Marshall, who will now be the senior editor for titles like Mass Effect, Avatar The Last Airbender, World of Warcraft. Uh, Philip Simon will oversee the Kitchen Sink reprint series. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brendan uh, Wright, uh, Patrick Thorpe. You know, just reading these names and what they do, it sounds so random because he's responsible for Halo and Avatar The Last Airbender and World of Warcraft. He's responsible for Fear Agent and Seven Short of Conan reprints. <laughs> and this guy does Hello and Walt Kelly. I Why? Have, I have to admit that when I first heard this announcement, my head immediately went towards, you know, Diana Schutz left some size yeah. 52 shoes behind and oh, they need like yep. nine people to fill them up. But apparently these promotions are because the book trade sales for Dark Horse have been up 30% in the last three years. Yo. Which, you know, I'll admit, 
I and I have said this before, I was legitimately worried about them when they lost Star Wars. But they seem to be doing really well now. They're stepping up uh what image is to ongoing series, Dark Horse appears to be to limited series because most mm-hmm. of their stuff, aside from, you know, the old, old guard, Hellboy, the goon, uh, uh, Sten Sakai's, Yusaji Jimbo, most of their stuff is now limited series, uh, graphic novels and such, right. which works fine for them. That's fantastic. I'm glad yeah. to hear it. Good um, for them. Slightly less fortunate news. Uh, we've started hearing the first creative decisions for Marvel post-Secret Wars. And the big announcement is that Iron Man will be written by Brian Michael Bendis. <clears throat> That's not said. Ha <laughs> ha! Um, you see, this is... Brian Michael Bendis, it's like hot potato. Whenever they announce that there's a new book and he's going to write it, your first thought is, please not mine, please not mine, please not mine. And, you know, I was really worried that he was going to write X-Men again after the reboot, but now he's doing Iron Man... But Tony Stark fans, I'm so sorry. Wait, no, no, no. Wait, I'm not. I'm not so sure because isn't the Brian Bendis rule is that when he works on team books, he's not good, but when he works on solo, he can he can hit it out of the park. That used to be true. I don't know if it still is well, because Ultimate, the solo you know, books that he has done, people talk about Ultimate Spider-Man, but I mean, even Ultimate Spider-Man is not what it was. Well, it can, as, it, as little as like three, four years. Well, ago. it can be what it was simply because it's. So old at this point, he's been doing it for 15 years. You can't okay. say you can't keep the but level. But then, of what other for- example would you offer as evidence that he can still do? He it used to be true when he was doing New Avengers, for example. I think there was a slight overlap when he was working on Daredevil as well. Yes. And you know, these two titles were day and night. Oh, yep. Daredevil, for all that it stumbled towards the end, was still really, really good. And New Avengers never well, ever his was. Moon Knight was okay. It wasn't brilliant and. I haven't read Scarlet, but friends of mine who did said it was good. So, but I mean, of all the writers at Marvel who could, this is Iron Man, right? So it's not like I mean, there's also an argument to be made that when people talk about Daredevil, when people talk about Moon Knight, these are characters that fit his existing disposition, right? Yes, because we all know where street, Bendis came street from. Street level characters yeah, exactly. in crime stories, and the fact that he never made good use of the X Men either as solo characters or as a group, is because, you well, know, this is not look, his forte. I, I, I don't like it. You, and Iron Man? This you, is a science, you know, a science fiction character? I don't you like it. You want to see Bendis do techno, I, techno speak? I don't like it. You don't like it. A lot of the reviewers don't like it. The people who actually buy Marvel Comics seem to like it fine, because, like it or not, he sells. You know, he sells by the truckload. That's... Well, but again, like, I have never considered sales to be indicators of quality. No, Like, no, would you I'm, read Bendis' Iron no, Man? No, I, I... Again, I'm not. But saying, why are Marvel doing this? It's obvious why they're doing this, because he's a big okay, seller. Okay, but... I, no, I'm not questioning why Marvel is doing it. I'm questioning, like, why we it has to be inflicted on us. Because, like, I'm trying to imagine are Tony Stark... Are you even Stark, reading Iron Man? Hmm? Have you... Have you... When? Not anymore. <laughs> when, when have you read Iron Man, you know, most What was the last run? Kieran Gillen. Kieran Gillen. And then Tom it was Thayer, okay. And then Tom, uh, what's his name? Tom something's uh, Superior Iron Man? No, I, I didn't do Superior Iron Man because yeah. that whole Axis thing they didn't appeal to me. But, you know, Kieran Gillen was doing okay. And, I mean, let's face it, Iron Man was never A-list in the books in the way that he is in the films, right? He was never, even, he like, could, at the height of his popularity, he could was be. never... What's, what's you know, what's the great Iron Man run, really? What's the... What is, a demon in a bottle. That's the only one that people the remember. The run was pretty good. Is that the one when he was going around with the armor that had no butt cheeks? 
No, I don't think so. Gail Simone wrote something about that that's like, God forbid he ever fly over somebody in one of those outfits. I guess... Or that was like young Tony I, I guess or Bob, Arno Stark. I guess Bob Layton's Iron Man. That was the demon in the bottle? No, I think that was Bob uh, Michelin. I've, wait, Bob Layton... We don't Bob, even remember who wrote <laughs> it. That just Because like, if I were to tell you, so who wrote the Dark Phoenix saga? Hmm, let me think, right? And Iron Man has never had that class, even in like modern times. Because when you talk about, for example, like Captain America, right? What would you say is an iconic run? The Winter Soldier saga. It's not old, but it does sort of crystallize the contemporary Captain America. And Iron Man, I don't think, even like something like Extremis, yeah. never really caught on. They, ret- they ended up like retconning all of that anyway, so I don't know. And now it's Bendis, which I'm trying to imagine like, there are, there are strings. Strings? What strings? Strings. You know? You know what strings? No strings. You know who I would really like to see? Adam Warren. Give that, him an- that ship has sailed. I don't know where Adam Warren is, but he, he's like... He's a dark horse. He's doing the Empowered thing. And Marvel doesn't know how to snatch him? I mean, come on. No, but like even the people who are working at Marvel now, Jason Aaron, for example, well, he couldn't do highbrow science fiction. Like It wouldn't be cerebral, but it we'll, would be... We'll get to Jason Aaron later in the podcast, okay. but I think by now we have proof that when he wants to... Yeah. He can do pretty much anything in any genre. I mean, what kind of story would Bendis be telling? The same kind of story that it'll involve some kind of retcon. Maybe Pepper's actually Tony's long-lost mother. I don't know. It'll be something like that. And then someone's going to have a monologue that's going to explain why these things are... The long-lost brother is Karen Gillan. You cannot blame Bendis for this. Uh, I just... Well, I mean, again, like, whenever they announce Bendis is doing a new book, I'm just like, please, Jeebus, not mine. Any, anything else, and, you know, Iron Man, so... Marvel TV News? Marvel TV News. So, Netflix Daredevil has been a success, as we've discussed before. This is just going from bad to worse. <laughs> and okay. so, naturally, they've announced a second season, and one of the big names for the second season will be The Punisher. Yes. Everybody's favorite gun-toting maniac. And, you know, this is like an example of a news item that took me from super happy to super depressed in like 20 seconds. Because when they first announced that the Punisher would be appearing in Daredevil, that just confirmed to me that they're doing the Elektra saga. Because the first time the Punisher and Daredevil meet in Miller's run is the issue after she dies. Hmm. So they're they're going for it. Like, I knew that they were casting Elektra, but this just confirms that they're going to do it, and I'm I'm ready for it. Like, the, the, the... foundation for the whole ninja, you know, the hand and, and that whole storyline was seated in the first season, but they're going for it. And I'm really, really looking forward to it. And I think also like adding the Punisher in Daredevil is clever because that would be a good platform to launch him into a anyway, solo series. Anyway, he's played by some and that's guy. the bad news. Some guy called John Barthnell? Bar- John Bernthal. You would know him as he played Shane on The Walking Dead. See, I wouldn't because I never watched The Walking Dead. And you, you were wiser than I am in that case. But, um... He, does he come yeah, back? He, does he come back? Yeah. Shane comes back. Yeah, as a zombie. Oh. But, basically... That movie would have improved ugh. so much if Shane would come back for a sequel. Shane! Shane! Don't come back! Shane 2, The Revenge. Oh, my God. And, so, okay. John Bernthal. I've seen him in a few other things. He's not good. He's just not a great actor, not really... Can he shoot people? I've seen so many Punisher Can he believably shoot people? No, you you need more than that to do Frank Castle. Well, yeah. You need to, because... Okay, taking into account that he's going to be an adversary in this series, right? 
presumably, if you're introducing him, like, I cannot believe that Marvel doesn't have at least the inkling of the idea of let's introduce him here and then give him a solo series. outside, yes. Like, not in the Defenders. Just like his own thing. Because they could do that. But, my God. I mean, John Bernthal? You couldn't aim a little higher? I I just don't understand. It's like casting, the, like like Jaden Smith is static shock. It's like, you have all of these possibilities. Tom Hardy mentioned that he was interested, and then DC was like, not in Tom my Tom Hardy house. a static shock? No, Tom, oh my God. <laughs> No, that would be wrong. Tom Hardy mentioned in an interview that he was sort of like he's interested in doing Frank Castle, and then DC's like, "No, no, not in my house. You belong to us." I never forget it, and they signed him up for some other mystery project. He's but, on Suicide Squad, no? No, he huh. dropped out of Suicide Squad, but now apparently they have him lined up for something else. Okay. Which you know, again, like good for Tom Hardy, good actor, whatever. But John Bernthal, I, I'm still I'm boggled. I was like, see, you could do I, any better I, than that. I don't know. And what's interesting, what interesting Douchebag. to me is. The Punisher is one of those few characters that's tied specifically to an event in time. The Punisher is very much a Vietnam vet character. No. And even, you know... Iraq. But it's not the same thing. It, it could be. It, if you were focusing on... I mean, well, this really depends on if they're doing Ennis, right? Because Ennis was the one who made even, him, like, the, war, no, the post-traumatic stress No, disorder. no, it was there in the, when he first appeared. He was regular Vietnam. Was it? Yes, yeah. Well, it was the 19, late 70s, early 80s. It but had I to be Vietnam. But they never made him, like, at least... I mean, if you're taking the source material, right? Like Miller. Miller's use of, of the Punisher in context with Daredevil. They never went into the whole soldier I I've never mindset. read the original Spider-Man appearance, so I'm not sure. I I should read some older Punisher. But it was who, always was there. Was it Stan Lee who, who was writing at the time? No, no, no. I think it was Roger Stern or something. Okay. I'm not sure. Okay. Anyway, what? But he has became due to Ennis's run more than anything else. Yeah. Sort of tied to the Vietnam era, and and he's really played it up. Even in his series, you know, the Punisher was an old old man. You know, mm. towards the end of the Max run, he he looked like sixty seven. Yeah. Uh, you know, a killer sixty seven year old man, but still sixty seven year old man. Which, to be honest, would have been a more interesting choice yes. for the show. Well, if they can't do it now. How how old would he have to be right now if he was a captain in Vietnam? But what would be? How or even a private in Vietnam. Well, let's because that say was 70 20 in Vietnam, that was 70. That Add another 40 years, he yeah. would be 60. Yeah. You could have like 60-year-old yeah. guys with muscles or whatever. You know, it could be done. And to be honest, that might even be a little more interesting. You could do Denzel. Oh, oh. wow. Well, it's not going to happen. We can, you know, we can dream about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those situations. I, I mentioned it uh, before yeah. we started recording. Just like your, your proposal that like... It should be Lady Bullseye and not Bullseye. That's like, it sounds so much better that way that I know. But again, like, even in the context of, because they do, they clearly want him to be older than Matt. Yeah, but the first Iraq war and the second Iraq war, they're not Vietnam in the public consciousness. It's not the same. As bad as it was to the soldiers there on the field, it's not the same thing. But I don't think that matters if you're looking at, if you, if you're characterizing Frank, Castle, I was about to say Frank Miller, but that could also apply to Frank Miller, but we're not going to talk about him today. Uh, if you characterize Frank Castle as a war-traumatized veteran whose experiences cause him, not sort of directly cause him to become the Punisher, but they're definitely a contributing factor, he could have had a similar experience in Afghanistan. Not, It, it wouldn't be the sort of cultural memory that Vietnam has. But Afghanistan, you know, there are narratives today that take the soldier yes. as the traumatized veteran, right? It could happen. In fact, wasn't that what they did with uh, the Falcon in, in The Winter Soldier? 
that he's a, a, a veteran therapist for people who specifically, like, they yes. came back from Afghanistan. So... Well, it's better than his recent origin revamp, right? The one where he was a... Uh, not recent, you know, the mid-80s, I think, where he was a pimp in Harlem. Who? Sam Wilson. That was one of the... I'm not even... I What?! I believe, what? I believe that was one of the retcons. That he was a pimp in Harlem? The Falcon? What? Who Who did this? No, uh, now I need to know. See, maybe I'm wrong. See, it's one of those, my memories of reading old entries in the Marvel Encyclopedia of Characters. Oh my god. Adventures I never actually read. I mean, listen, there's a whole swath of Avengers back... I mean, I believe it. Right, like that's the sort that's that is like if you were to explain that whole thing with Carol Danvers and her baby slash lover slash time displaced father of himself, it reads like something that's like that can't be right, that can't possibly be accurate, but it is. So wow, Sam Wilson was a pimp in Harlem. Okay, let's let's not uh, DC movie news. Well, DC movie news. Okay, okay, let's move on. Let's move yeah. on. Yeah. So James Wan. Director of Furious Seven and will be the Saw franchise. The really, first, the first, the first two or three, I believe. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, well, he'll be directing Aquaman, so he has a range. He can do bad horror. He can do bad action. Well, here's the thing about James Wan. I'm not a huge fan of the Furious franchise, oh. but you can't deny that, especially after the death of Paul Walker, you would have expected this franchise to wither and die. And one has, to a certain extent, revitalized it. It's it's no, it's 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 strange because uh, you know the first movie was a success, and then two and three basically coasted off that success. And then have you been watching like this? I've 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 watched the first one. I've watched uh, half of the second one, and then I've watched uh, half of five, six, and seven. Okay, so you know of, you know more yeah, about it yeah, than yeah, I do. And when you look at them. It was a strange uphill battle because after the sinking, after you know, Vin Diesel left and the move and the franchise was basically left in the hands of Paul Walker, mm-hmm. it started to climb up. Didn't he come back? He came back. It came okay. back for four after you know he tried to be a oh. solo star and didn't work for him. Okay. And it became sort of an ensemble. Also ran a faction heroes. You had the Rock. You had Vin Diesel. You had Paul mm. Walker. And you can see the sales climbing, you know. Four right. was a success, five was a bigger success, six was a huge success, and seven is one of the most successful movies ever right now. It's ridiculous. They're projecting that it may top The Avengers 2. Okay. It's over a billion dollars. Right. Furious 7. And I mean, financially speaking, yes. that would be the right choice for a property like Aquaman, which is a tough sell no matter what. Right? I mean, I've seen the poster. The The guy, they they, they cast Jason Momoa yeah. as Aquaman. They're going to do the Conan thing, Yeah, right? the Undersea Conan. I'm surprised Conan. he has both hands, to be honest. I was expecting... Well, at the, the beginning of the movie. Right. Oh, that's a good point. So, it seems like a good fit. It feels I don't know, like, because you have... You would be casting... I'm assuming that most of this movie takes place underwater. I might be wrong about that. Like, it depends on whether they're doing Aquaman in Atlantis or Aquaman in... Like, yes. on the surface world. I don't know. Uh, it's an interest. I'm still not going to go watch Aquaman. Oh, because God, I just have no, no interest in, in that at all. I, I have but, no interest in James Wan, so... But, I mean, it, this seems like a situation where they found the person who was best suited to the task. Unlike John Bernthal, because I'm still bitter about that, and I'm not going to let it go. Uh, you're not going to let it go. Would but, you prefer Jason Momoa <laughs> as the Punisher? 
Yes! Okay. I mean, no, because you want someone who, compared to Charlie Cox, right? Charlie Cox is like this slip of a guy. You want someone who's like gigantic and hulking and like casts a shadow over him because that's the the disparity between them. And it's John Bernthal. And I assume he does not cast a shadow. Speaking of TV news, Universal TV has optioned The Wicked and the Divine. This is the Image comic book series by Karen Gillan and Jamie McKelvey. Apparently, this is one of the results of that deal that Matt Fraction and yeah. Kelly Sue DeConnick were working on. Yes. So, um, hmm. The Wicked and the Divine as a TV show. Well, it's about superpowered teens, so you can see why, you know, just as a high concept, people would want it. But. This could end up being another Lucifer, though. Yeah, they like, fight crime. That does, that does not. Well, <laughs> A, it's an American TV show. Mm-hmm. And the comic book takes place in England, and all of them are Londoners, right? Uh, I, re- I read the I think first so. arc. Yeah, I read the first arc. They're all very, very English. Right. So, either the cast would, what? Would they recast it all as Americans? Would they be, would um, it be like elementary style, they're coming to America? I could see, you know, they're well, playing... Well, the mythological elements are sort of Judeo-Christian, right? The first arc, no. The first arc played with a lot of mythologies because you had pagan deities and you had okay. lesser demons and, su- and like, stuff like that. It's not phonogram in that the Britishness of it is essential. I, I assume it's essential for Gillen and McKelvey, but as the plot mechanics go, no. Because the whole point of it is that the gods reincarnate as you know teenage pop stars right. every 90 years or so. Mm-hmm. So you can do it anywhere as a high concept. Okay. How much would it be tied to the Gillen McKelvey run? I don't know. I assume not a lot. Mostly because the Gillen McKelvey run is 11 issues in. There's, there isn't a lot of material to work with. Well, I, I guess it depends on the type of deal that Fraction and DeConnick have been making. Like, are they just throwing these pitches out there based on the books, or is there an expectation that they are adapting the uh, actual books? Because uh, you're right, like, Sex Criminals also has not been around for that long. Yeah. It's a year in. Yeah, and it's a so, slow burner. You yeah. you know, the first arc is two episodes of a TV show. The first, yeah, you know, I can see that. Be, you know, being generous, it's like, the, you would it's, need to introduce Kegelface and like the villains within the first episode, two at the most. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it's, maybe maybe they'll do it as an half-hour comedy. That would be weird, but it could work. It Not could. as a forty-five minute, you know, no, action no. hour. I think it could work either way because a lot of it is about performance rather than the source material. Mm-hmm. I Zombie, I Zombie doesn't right. have much to do with the original comic aside from she's a zombie. Yeah, and less change. and less as time goes yeah. on. Also, and I enjoy I Zombie. You know, like it or hate it, it works as a thing on its by yeah. its own. And I think a lot of the problems in modern pop culture with source fidelity. Fidelity mm-hmm. is that fans have become such a loud voice thanks to the internet that we've become used to anything has to be one hundred percent accurate, source accurate, and and if you change a line from a book in the adaptation for the movie, people scream. And the Harry Potter movies were the worst about it because mm-hmm. no matter how loyal they were, you know the fans would up and about. Harry didn't say the right line, and right. Hermione had the wrong curly hair in that Despite scene. the fact that J.K. Rowling was involved you know, sitting there in with a films. whip uh, yeah. in front of the screenwriter was like, no! <laughs> bad director! Bad! I I mean, the, the, the book, side of that you know, argument... You know, you know, work or fail, the book is there, the comic is there, yeah. the source material is there. You know, the Lucifer show would be a disaster. But that's the, that's but the I don't sort of care. It's not. It's not gonna tarnish... 
Mike Carey's oh, run. No, no, no. I mean, Mike Carey's run is there. It's available. You can always pick it up whenever you want, especially now that we're in like the, in the digital age. age yeah. There is no obstacle to just reaching out and getting the trades online. But the the problem with the source fidelity argument, and I do agree with you, like it doesn't threaten the original, but something like Lucifer, I think, is on the opposite end of that spectrum because then you have a series that resembles iZombie you know, has sort of elements of the high concept, but that's about it. Lucifer, from what we've seen, has nothing at all to do with the original. So there comes a point where well, it's like... Well, he's called Lucifer. So are quite a few... I mean, listen, Satan is like the most popular character on TV these days. And yet, one million moms can't even shut that off. Which just goes to tell you. <laughs> like, I, I love that. I mean, did you hear this story? One million moms... They're not actually one million. Like, they're 1.00001 moms, um, tried to protest, fuck, you know, Lucifer. Lucifer. They wanted to get it off the screens because, of course, and they failed. They could not get a show that is actually about the devil off TV. Question. I love that. Did Fox News protest Fox's, uh, network? Mm. Lucifer TV show? They know where the money is. They're uh, not going to open their mouths. I'm not sure. I think they're schizophrenic enough. <laughs> The devil is... Oh, wait. We're producing this? Okay, well, um... Um... Heroic... The Wicked and the Divine will feature a case of pagan superheroes fighting to end Christianity as we know it. Christianity is under attack. I don't know. I just think that... Like... Someday somebody will do The Atheist as a TV show. You remember The Atheist? It was like a six-issues Dark Horse horror series. Does not ring a bell, but, you know, sounds like the sort of superhero I'd want. There has to be, I mean, as with any adaptation, there has to be some element of common sense, right? You have to be able to look at these properties and say, okay, what are the things that work and need to be translated in order for this to have any kind of connection to the text that it's adapting? And what are the things that you can leave aside? Like, Harry Potter fans were really, really, really nitpicky towards the end. And it's even less of an argument when you have, like, the actual author saying... No, it's fine. You know, doesn't bother me. Shouldn't bother you. So, but you you do need to keep some kind of connection there. Like you know, and again, the best example that I can think of of something that navigates the tra- the two extremes is Daredevil, because there were parts of those of that show that were very clearly not taken from the comics, and in some cases even resisted. I mean, look at Karen Page. You know, she's yeah. written in a different way than she was in the comics but that's not a bad thing on the and i mean also we talked about um you know the difference in fisk's characterization yeah the kingpin was very right. different very different in the context of the series itself you could make the argument that it works but they kept his original uniform they kept the the relationship that he has with foggy they dropped the hints of like stick and the hand like those are the things that need to carry forward unlike say fighting electro in a playground for argument's sake in plain view uh-huh. Any other news? No, that about covers the news. Oh, slow week. Slow week, slow period. I'm all for it. People don't cause problems. We like the ship to sail smoothly. So, shall we go on to the reviews? Yes. Uh, shall we start with DC Comics? Absolutely. So, uh, we will be reviewing... We shall start and maybe we will end mm. DC Comics. Well, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Midnighter number <coughs> one by Steve Orlando, who writes... And drawn by somebody who's either called ACO or ECO or ACO. I, I have no idea. I have no idea. What's that supposed to be? I just ended up with, like, ACO. ACO? I don't know. Um, so this is one of the number ones that were launching as part of the post-convergence 
relaunch, I guess you can call it. They don't even know what they're calling it anymore. Relaunch, reboot, divergence. Is that the official name? I think so. Veronica Roth is going to be so pissed off. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so... There are four types of DC superheroes. <laughs> no. The smart ones, the dumb ones. <laughs> They're all kind of dumb these days. Um, okay, so Midnighter. This is... Now, here's the, the, the thing that... Just as sort of an introduction. This is a version of a character who has been screwed with, like, in terms of DC and the multiverse... For quite a significant period of time. I tried retracing, like, Midnighter's origin circa the New 52, and I got lost. Like, apparently, Wildstorm was brought into the DCU. Mm-hmm. Okay, so some general background. The Midnighter was a member of a team called The Authority. Yeah, Stormwatch, this, then The Authority, War Analysis run. Right. War Analysis, iconic run, right? This was sort of like the deconstruction superheroes at the turn of the century. Uh, very cinematic, very violent. The thing that characterized the Midnighter, and I'm not saying this to be reductive, but really that's all there is, was the fact that in terms of the Wildstorm configuration of heroes, he was the gay Batman. Yes. That was pretty much it. Like, that was the gag, that was the, the, the trope. Uh, he was the uber-violent gay Batman in a relationship with Wildstorm's version of the gay Super. Superman, which was Apollo. Apollo, yes. And that was it. And that was fine at the time, because they, Ellis, you know, he doesn't they, they, really... They were mostly actions. You know, people call the authority deconstruction. I've read the 12 issues again recently. It's not deconstruction of anything. It's just very big up action stories. There isn't enough plot for it to deconstruct anything. Right. Stormwatch had deconstructive elements to it. Well, also, I guess Miller's authority. Yeah. Mil- I, they sort of conflate the two because Miller's run was designed very as a continuation. Di- yeah, but it was very different. But that, I think, was like deconstruction. It's in the sense that, let's talk about real-world issues, only because it's Mark Miller. Let's just say the treatment wasn't quite as progressive as, anyway, as many would have hoped. I don't think all of it important. For the Crisis! Se- Flashpoint. For, for the sake of this series, mm-hmm. as far as it goes, all we need to know is that Midnighter is an anti-hero, that he... Is a very violent guy that he's not that he doesn't have any secret identity as far as you know anybody's concerned. You know the first thing he does is like, "Hello, I'm the Midnighter. You want to date mm-hmm. a superhero?" Well, and yes and no. Before we get to like talking okay. about the plot of the issue, I want to preface just to say like I had a similar problem here that I had with Grayson. First of all, this is a spinoff of Grayson because the Midnighter appears in Grayson as an antagonist. Yes. And now we have sort of this new book, which features the Midnighter as the protagonist. But the problem is, all of these ref- like the book has these references to the gardener and the god garden, yes. and it's clearly building off something, some kind of event. I don't uh, know really? what it is. I, I I didn't feel any anything missing. You know, the Midnighter was created. As part of some military experiment, we know that because he keeps on saying, I have a computer in my brain, and everything that you are about to do, I'm, you know, is a super soldier. He was created in this place called the God Garden, and as we begin the issue, the God Garden is under attack, and obviously he's going to have to find out who, why, and how. Right, but the the character of the gardener, you know, like, she calls him son, and he calls her family, and it's like, I don't know who this person is. I don't need to, I don't need them to say it directly. What they're saying for me is enough. Okay. Well, so let's talk about the plot of the issue. So it's, it's half. It's half of you know setting up a, an ongoing arc, which is mm-hmm. who's attacking the God Garden and why is he doing that, and half establishing who the Midnighter is. Mm-hmm. And what they're saying is, a he's very much into casual dating, right? And b he's very much into violence. They're establishing. 
probably I think for this is the type of character this series is about. He's okay. not. He's an unapologetic about who he is, what he is. You know, he loves violence. He loves casual sex. His He's, he enjoys profile it. Mm-hmm. was so funny. What? It, okay, so... Which th- line? Th- this version of Midnighter is a lot more sardonic and humorous, and I like that. Like, I like Orlando's interpretation. His dating profile is chronically new in town, computer in brain, superhumanly flexible, generally use flexibility for justice, looking for other uses, have headbutted an alien... Whatever you're thinking, the answer is likely yes, but with punching. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> I, like I, like, I like the writing. The thing that troubles me here mm-hmm. is the art. Well, b- before we get to the okay. art, um, character-wise, I also like the guy that he picks up at the bar, uh, Jason. Like, as sort of this... He seems like the kind of person that you meet in the DCU, right? Like, he can take certain things in stride because they go out on a date and then these weirdo terrorists Rich, show yeah. up with rage guns <laughs> that make people angry and Midnighter wipes Beats. the floor with them. Yes. And uh, Jason, the, the the guy that he picks up is sort of like, oh, okay, that's cool. But then the more he gets into it, the more he starts to realize that maybe he's in over his head. Like there's GPSing involved and teleportation. And I, he's I like, I'm an IT guy. I can cope with the concept of dating a superhero up to a point where it's you're, I, you're I, coming on too strong. I really like the idea of the Midnighter having his own little human crew of, you know, psychics, sort of like mm-hmm. uh, the Shadow. You remember? Yes. The Shadow had all these assistants, you know, wearing the signet rings and like, the Shadow knows, so the Midnighter knows. That's a fine idea. A lot of a lot of this issue has fine ideas. But I, I do have one other problem in terms of the story okay. like before we get to the plot. I don't think that's an issue a, here. I don't think it's a problem. It's a solo series. It's not supposed to be Midnighter and Apollo. And if you bring in Apollo as a part of his life, you're going to start asking questions. Well, why isn't he bringing his Superman boyfriend to help solve all of the problems? Because Apollo is Superman. But the problem is that this is a character who he's mentioned in the book. Like, yes. They, they're bringing him up. So he's a presence. And again, like nobody knows the Midnighter as a solo superhero outside the context of his relationship with Apollo, even after the reboot, right? That's what he yeah, was known for. Yeah, he had for. a solo series for like 12 issues. Midnight turned, uh, Apollo turned up there all the time. Right. Like, you can't get away from that. And also because it was one of the few same-sex relationships in DC that were not tragic, right? That were not like um, Kate Kane can't marry her girlfriend. Yeah, they had an adopted daughter. Right. So the fact that that relationship has been retconned out and that Apollo isn't part of the book. On the one hand, okay, it gives Steve Orlando more of an opportunity to flesh out who the Midnighter is as a, as a person, right? As a solo adventurer. But on the other hand, it's like what you've given up, it's sort of the idea that, you know, Batwoman was canceled and now we have the Midnighter. Yeah, but so I don't, you I sacrificed don't, one character in order I, to I promote disagree. another. It's not apologetic at all. It's not like hiding the fact that the Midnighter is gay. That's yes. right out there in your face as... High as a DC rated for what? What is this thing rated? T fourteen? I think so. You know, it's as close as you can for an you know on the page sex scene with two dudes. Yes, but the fact that it's you know this I don't know if Jason you know the the guy that he he's with in this issue is going to stick around as a supporting character, but it's like we have gay characters in comics. This isn't like yeah. necessarily new. It's ground. not nineteen eighty five. We don't have a lot of. Are relationships, right? You remember, like, they made that whole big deal about North Star getting married? Yes. Meanwhile, has anyone seen him since? No. It's like, because you don't, you know, these were characters who were both superheroes, Midnighter and the Apollo. 
So you can make the argument that there there might be something interesting there, as opposed to this one's a superhero, I, this one's a civilian. I disagree because when you do, we've seen it already. When you do have a solo character in his own book, I prefer mm. them to have a supporting cast of non-superheroes. I think Spider-Man works. You know, it's the perfect example of the supporting characters make the book. Yeah, and I don't care if it's Jason, if it's someone else. You know. I believe they'll get him someone to get on with. And if not, for me, it's not a big issue because he's established here as the kind of guy who does a lot of casual dating. Right. And I, I don't want Apollo in the book because for me, that's, that will turn the book quickly into Midnighter and Apollo, which is a fine book, but it could be a fine book by itself, but it's not a Midnighter solo series. You know what it is? I would be more okay with it if Apollo were actually in another book, but he's not. No. That's the, that, like, that I think might be more of the issue, right? Yes, like, if this is a solo book, then you don't necessarily need to have Apollo. But the fact that Apollo, like, this would have been the only book you could justify his presence in, because he's not going to turn up on the uh, on the JLA when you have Superman, right? That I was assume, always the problem with bringing Wildstorm into DC, is that these characters already exist. Yeah. And, I mean, that's why bringing the Midnighter into Grayson was such a brilliant move. Like, you would need to have... You could have Batman without having Batman. And at this point, he is different enough from Batman. He's not right. just a Steph Con- You know, he's got the ultra-violent, and he's not... Batman is tragic. The Midnighter loves his job. Yeah. He always have, and here it's extremely so. You know, he's enjoying right. every single beatdown that he's delivering. And that's fine. That's that's a different book. That's a unique take about the anti-hero concept, because yeah. we don't get... Fun, violent anti-heroes. We get, you know, everything is tragic and dour right. and moody. And here it's like, no, no, no. Breaking people's spines can be enjoyable yeah. if you. Orlando's it. decision to go with humor specifically yeah. is a good one because, and also, like we saw a lot of this in Midnight and uh, Grayson too, right? Like the 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 sort of like flirtation that they have. Yes, there's there's this line that will all it just pops up everywhere when you when you're looking at a review of Grayson. So there's a scene where. Uh, you know, Dick is hiding his face, and the Midnighter shows up, and he's like, okay, I can't see your face, but I know that ass anywhere. And it's like, that's a line that could not have come from anyone besides the Midnighter. And it works. So, like, the decision to have him be more humorous, I like it. And I understand the logic beto- b- behind making him a solo, solo character. character. Yes. I just wish it didn't come at the expense of another character. Like, well, if Apollo was somewhere else in the DCU... It'd be like, okay, so well, at least... I assume the God Garden thing in this continuity, at least, also involves Apollo. In the original... I don't know what it is. In the I've... original authority, they were the products of the same super soldier program. Midnighter and Apollo were yeah. created together. I that ass- seems to also be the implication yeah. and here. By, and by mentioning him, I assume he'll appear later, maybe as, like, the scorned boyfriend. It's like, that would be great. I, so, I don't have to see him on the first issue. They mention him, and that's enough. Yeah. Uh, okay. The question is, will we continue beyond the first issue? Well, you had a... I mean, I think we both have an issue with the art here. Yeah, okay. It's pretty overall, but it has the same problem that I had with Ghost Rider, which is it tries to overdo itself, to overthink itself, and therefore, when you have the action scenes, and, you know, like, good 30-40% of this book is an action scene, you have Mm. no idea what's going on. It's the little panels, right? Like, you have this big splash page, which seems to present the Midnighter, you know, taking some Moving about, kicking a lot of people. But then you have, like, all of these little panels, and they don't, they're not sequential. They don't make any kind of sense. Like, you're looking at an explosion, and then there's this little panel of, like, 
a finger. Yeah, what or a flying and hand. I get what they're I get what they're trying to do. It just doesn't work well. Explain that because yeah, I didn't understand. No, it's that supposed at all. to be, you know, his small movements, you know, taking out people. I get it in theory. In practice it doesn't work. You know, the the anger guns. Yeah. Do they you know, do they knock people out? Do they just make people spasm? Because some people get like, shot by them sh- and are they shooting because yeah. even the angles that Akko's sh- I'm going with Akko even the the angles like there are some scenes where the guy is pointing the gun at the ceiling but is sh- clearly firing yeah and then firing at other times lasers. he's aiming at people so it's like what are these things and a lot of these things are cool in theory the the part where uh, you know he uses the rib bone of, of a stake to take someone's eye out yeah. that should be glorious but it's it's just okay here yeah it's it's a real problem yeah But there is a bigger problem, and a it's not bigger problem. yeah, it's not echo's fault. Uh, we read this digitally, yes, and I've tried the physical thing because I'm a physical guy, and as I assume everybody who's listening to this podcast know, DC had their experiment in mm-hmm. this month in which they inserted ads into the middle of the comic. What you have is you have a a, a double spread. And instead of a full page of comic and then an ad as you which is how it usually goes yes you have half a page then an ad and then the other side of the page is half a page and an ad and they chose Twix which is a shame because I used to like Twix I no longer like not Twix. only did they choose Twix I taste bitterness and ash now whenever I eat a Twix why do I need to be reading DC comics and then Nick Lachey is asking me if I would like a Twix shut up first of all shut up Nick Lachey I'm not here for Nick Lachey <laughs> In general, this former boy bander ex-husband of a ditz, I don't even want to, like, no. But also, like, get out of my comic, Nick Lachey. And there were some interesting reactions from DC staff. Obviously, this wasn't something that anyone could do anything about, right? They all sort of had to go with it. Yeah, it came from way up. Cameron Stewart tried to use humor. He was like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. It's in the script. See, like, panel number one, Batgirl and, and uh, Cassandra are sending him around. Panel number two, Nick Lachey comes in and asks them if they would like some twigs. But, and, but Greg Capullo was pissed Greg Capullo used off. anger they keep screwing with Snyder and Capullo specifically like they last really? time it was the price hike and now it's the art like they're getting angry they really shouldn't do it with their most successful creative I team I know right but stop poking the bear now here's the thing and though. when I say poking the bear I mean literally have you have you people seen Greg Capullo he I've could, never seen he him he could but... kill every single DC staff oh member with, a, with two hands tied behind his back He's so a we, scary looking dude you're saying like he, he looks like Sylvester Stallone he, he's a pumped guy Wow okay he could play the Punisher because he's like an old <laughs> pumped guy killing them with pens um so okay his death was a criminal Th- this was his a- death was on the FBI most wanted list oh my god <laughs> his life story should be a comic really they should they should like and then adapt it to Netflix why not <laughs> um so okay the there are a few things here that need to be unpacked first of all the fact that you So these ads are in the physical comic, yes. right? They break up the pages. Only in the physical comic, not in the digital edition. Right. However, the digital edition, as a result of this, because what happens in the digital edition was they took the two half pages, take out the ads, and make it one page. Mm-hmm. What that means, in reality, is that the digital content is one page shorter than usual, right? Yes. Instead of 22 pages of content, now you have 21. And the prices are the same. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, people mention, and rightfully so, that it's not a new thing. You know, comics did it all the way up to the 70s, and in some cases, even the 80s. Spider-Man used to ask you if you like Hostess Twinkies. And 
that's that's fine. You know, you're right to bring it up. But a, they stop doing this, and we don't, just as we don't bring back a lot of things that other things that they did in the seventies. You know, like the casual racism, <laughs> we don't have to bring that back. And b, how much were the comic back then? Twenty five cents. Yeah. So see if if that if this comic were twenty five cents, if it were a dollar, two dollars, I wouldn't care. If they if they said well doing the ads and we're slashing the prices, I would be. Fine, you know, it's not necessarily for me, but I can understand that. What this is, is adding insult to injury. Bad enough that you are charging $3.99 for 22 pages, right? Yes. That is already something that, you know, we as, as comics readers, as people who, are, who read the mainstream comics output... Bad enough that we have to put up with that, right? And we do put up with that. We sort of shrug, you know, Marvel puts out $4.99 books... We we complain about it, but sometimes we go for it anyway. Even though for that amount of money, you could probably get just get Netflix. You know, there's no lack. You could do a lot more with that money in other media and get more for your buck. Fine. So we put up with the fact that it's four dollars for twenty two pages. We're not happy about it, but we we do it. We put up with variants. We put up with late. You know, with, with schedule problems. We put up with all of this bizarre editorial interference and there's always some kind of dumbass sexism and always some kind of, you know, inadvertent mistake. We put up with all of these things. And then you have the gall, the unmitigated gall, to add advertisements into 22 pages and shorten the page count and not drop the price. There is no justification that DC could give that would make me say, oh, fine. This is the last straw. Like, this really is taking it too far. $3.99 for 22 pages is clearly not enough. How about $3.99 for 21 pages? Are you out of your goddamn minds? See, and I'm not angry. I'm I, furious! I'm, I'm kind of disappointed because a lot of these books were books that I wanted to read. A lot of, we've talked about the post-Convergence uh, DC Universe Showing a lot of potential, but I just and the can't. fact that it's all of the number ones—they're doing this yeah. for all of them—and I can't financially justify it. I don't—I don't think it's even all of the number ones. I think it's all of the books this month. You know, like Batman <laughs> oh forty-one, God. because there's—you know—if Greg Capullo has to do it, it means the Batman titles has to do it, and they're right. not a number ones. Yeah, that's true. So as long as they're doing it, I'm not buying. You know, it's not like a moral stance. You know, DC—it's a commercial enterprise. DC never pretended to be anything other than commercial enterprise. They no. can do whatever they want. Even I a commercial entity has certain limits beyond which they cannot abuse their customer base. Well, this they can. is spitting in our eye. Well, they can. We just don't have to take it. Well, and, that's and, the and, thing. And I'm not going to take it. You know, if they stop doing that, I'll back. Up. I'll be back reading. You know, whatever books catch my fancy. As long as they're doing it, I I am going to say this. Right, speaking for myself as a reader. For the duration of this policy, and they haven't announced how long it's going to last. I think it's just initially, a right now. Initially, they said it's going to be an experiment for one mm. month. I have a hard time believing that. Because DC does not make smart decisions. And the fact that they even contemplated this in the first place tells you enough. As long as this policy is in practice, I am boycotting DC number ones. I'm saying it flat out. I'm not putting, th I'm not paying them for spitting in my face. You know? It's bad enough. I was willing to put up with the four ninety nine price line because, right? That's just the way it is, and there's no, nothing see, you can do about see, it. But this is like, let's gouge you for that 
extra page, right? Let's uh, make I, even less I effort disagree. and I, make you pay for it. I disagree. I'm not boycotting Marvel $5 titles. I'm just not buying them because why would I But pay? I'm not reviewing them either. That's the yeah, issue. Yeah, because we're not buying them. Why right. would we review them? No, but that's exactly the... Like, I'm saying boycott. I realize that the term boycott has because certain for me, boycott implications. Is, yeah, for me, boycott is something that comes from, you know, I have a political stance I want to make. I have, right. You okay. know, I'm boycotting the Scott Card books or whatever. Okay. I'm not oh, well. boycotting. I'm not boycotting. I'm just saying it's a crap product. Why would I'm I pay not for going it? to? Okay, so let's like if I were to rephrase it as less of an inflammatory thing. Yeah. I will. I refuse to support this policy, as long as DC. Okay, a DC comic that has half-page ads in it. I'm not buying it. I'm not reviewing it. I'm not reading it because, again, despite the like the digital comics don't have the ads, mm-hmm. but they're one page less, and you are already gouging. Them. And and you can see that the artists in some. You know, in some point, has to strain to restructure the page, right? And as a someone who has friends in the you know direct market, mm-hmm. it's my little conspiracy-minded self is saying they're trying to push these people. They're they're trying to directly push people out of buying uh, physical copies. They want to destroy the comic book stores in order to push people for their preferred method of you know buy digitally directly from us. If that were true, there would be an extra page in the digital version. That's like, again, like, I understand that argument and I wish that it were true because I read digitally. Like, it's convenient for me to have, to have comicsology mm. and to have, you know, these different apps. I'm, I'm a split, and I'm a split guy. I okay. mostly do print sometimes. Fair there. enough. If that were the case, if this were an attempt to promote digital, why is the digital comic one page shorter? Why are we paying the same amount of money for less content than we were last month? What, I mean, I can't justify it anymore. Even three ninety nine for an issue is the sort of thing where you have to stop and think, right? Yeah. You can't be buying all the convergence books. No. You can't be, you know, if you hear about a book on a previews and it sounds interesting, you have to stop and think. Four dollars for a number one, or you remember when we were looking at the previews for for uh, Lando, right? Yes. It was what was it five ninety uh, four ninety nine for two issues in one month. So you're paying ten dollars yes. for a series you might not even like. For the first two issues. It's like, and, what is wrong with you people? And meanwhile, you know, Image will will give you for for 3.5, you know, a 40-page issue, you know, first issue. Exactly. A Brian K. Vaughn 40-page issue, which you know and, will be better than anything else <laughs> Marvel DC is offering. And that you don't need recap pages to get into. And if, and it's, my rule for $5 comic is this. I read Dark Horse Presents. Dark mm. Horse Presents is $5. It's 48 pages. And if Dark Horse, which is a smaller company than DC and Marvel, can afford to do it, they can afford to do it. They just don't want to. Mm-hmm. So, okay, you know, do your thing. I'm not going to buy right. it. We're not in the bankruptcy days. There is no justification for DC or for Marvel these days to be being, oh, you know, we don't have money, so we kind of have to do this. Like, what? I know sales are tanking, and you keep pushing these events to try and pump things up, and it's not working anymore. Maybe try something else. They didn't even consider... You know, you're putting in these half-page ads, drop the price by a dollar. Presumably, Twix paid them. Half for these a dollar, ads, at right? least. Something. Even, you know what? Half a dollar would have been fine. If this had been 350 instead of 399 it's, it's a symbolic gesture. Yes. But it's still a gesture. The same price? You are out of your damn minds. And we are not, like, I, I can't speak for you, but I'm speaking for myself. I am not doing this with DC anymore. Until I see evidence that this policy is over, because no. 
Like there's there comes a point where you have to take a stand as a consumer and be like, you guys have been pushing us to the limits of what our wallets and our own conscience is willing to tolerate. And now, like, now Nick Lachey. Now Twix. So to hell with all of that. From DC? Yes. To Marvel, okay. which we also complain about, but at least <laughs> from time to time, they will produce something that is worth the free 99. They will produce Weird World number one, written by Jason Aaron and drawn by Sean's lover of eternity, <sighs> Mike Del Mundo. Welcome back, Mike. You've been missed. Oh, welcome back, Mike. Welcome back, good Jason Aaron. Well, you haven't been missed because you were there all along, you know, doing your thing in Southern Bastard and such. Michael Mothers. No, the good Jason Aaron. Oh, no. Not the, you know, uh, the (laughs) event Jason Aaron. Schism. Yeah. Um, Anyway. Well, this is technically the event Jason Aaron. Yeah. But, you know. The plot. Uh, It's a battle world crossover, so we have a weird world of... uh, A weird world. We have a strange kingdom, (laughs) a separate kingdom of our own. And here we find barbarian king uh, Akron. Archon. Arkon, sorry. Akron is a town in Ohio. I made that mistake the entire time I was reading the issue, and then all of a sudden, like, his name shows up in... in You're the, ready for our next... Oh, re- it's Archon! You're preparing for our next review with the weird misspelling of uh, all Jewish names. <laughs> anyway, Archon is a bar- barbarian king who mm-hmm. finds himself in a strange and foreign land, and he tries to make the way back home, except wherever he goes, he there are monsters and dragons and ogres with... Futuristic weapons and everything is trying to kill him. So it's Conan meets uh, Warhammer 40k mm. meets the Marvel Universe. Well, this is the the thing that was interesting about this and the reason it sort of stands out from the rest of the Secret Wars tie-ins. Aaron really dug into the archives for this. Archon the Magnificent, apparently, and this is like research, right? I had to go into the archives for this. Apparently, the last time he turned up was Kurt Busiek's JLA Avengers, 2003, I think. Yeah, the, uh, well, everyone appeared in JLA Avengers. Right. In continuity, <laughs> the last time anyone even knew who he was was back when West Coast Avengers was a thing, which just tells you how far back we're going. In fact, the title itself, Weird World, is also a throwback. There was a uh, a series by Doug Munch, Doug, Doug Munch and Mike Plug in the late 70s which was this weird sword and sorcery pastiche. It was set on an island called Klarn. There was a dwarf named Mudbutt, which just tells you what we were doing at the time. I don't think it was even a series. It was part of the... Some you know, kind of feature. Yeah, it was a feature in Marvel Fanfare and Marvel right. Comics Presents and such. It During the 70s and, you know, late 60s, the Marvel had a lot of, you know, genre series which weren't mm-hmm. superheroes. They had horror stories. They had... They had Conan. Yes. Right. And oddly, they had all of these series, but they all took place in the Marvel Universe. So, mm, there was Kulan a... Ta- Gath. Oh, yeah. You remember that? Uh, Godzilla. Marvel's Godzilla, <laughs> which fought dirt, the devil dinosaur, you yeah. know, in, in the moon, and the moon people. The weirdest of them all, I think, was Frankenstein, because they had the rights to produce Frankenstein adaptations. So, they started the first four issues were sort of a direct adaptation of the novel, but then... Mm-hmm. Well, we had to continue the series somehow, so he sleeps and he wakes up in the modern Marvel Universe. Isn't that the origin story for his Captain America? <laughs> Frankenstein America. Frankenmerica. Okay. Um, so this was sort of a revival, but not really, in the sense that it's a sword and... It's, well, you said it. It's Conan the Barbarian, yes. right? In the context of the Marvel Universe, using a character who... Was it the Steph Conan, apparently? <sighs> Well, I only was knew, he? I, I only know him for, from one thing, and it's not a comic. You remember the 
1992 X-Men TV series. He was in that, yeah. He was in that for a two-parter where he was a king from another dimension who wanted to marry Storm. Yeah. And he turned up That's to be a jerk. That's apparently his thing. He, he, he wanted to marry Scarlet Witch, too. His, oh. His thing is like, you know, female superhero, marry me. Doesn't matter who you are, just, you know, let's, let's get hit. 70s Marvel. <laughs> oh, oh, 70s. So, I have to say, though, like, this book stands out apart from the fact that it's playing on, like, certain names and certain titles and certain characters that haven't been around in a long time. So much of Secret Wars so far has been about reiteration, right? Like, doing the thing that was already done to constantly diminishing returns. This was the problem we had with A-Force, right? It's like, oh, good, let's do House of M again. Why not? Weird World is the first tie-in I've seen in that feels original, not for itself, because really, Archon is... Conan. It's a Conan passage. There's no, you know, there's no way around it. But it's a book that you don't see at Marvel. No. Marvel does not do this sort of book. So that's sort of like, this, this feels like the only title that really justifies the necessity of having Secret Wars in the first place. Because you could only have this kind of story in an environment where, like, because he's on a floating island full of monsters and goblins and, and Morgan Le Fay and, and all of these, you know, this mystical stuff so far, that Marvel doesn't really do anymore. So far, it's a very... It it can very well be a standalone, you know? Yeah. It's just a fantasy series. Well, except for they have this annoying trait, and this has to be editorial mandated. He has to mention Doom. Oh, thank Doom. Doom, take it, my eye. It doesn't matter because in the context of that series, he could be praying to his god Doom, which, you know, it's no different than Krom saying I would Krom. rather hear Krom, though. That well, he, he's, he's, he keeps reminding me. Krom is owned by Dark Horse right now. But Doom, why Doom? Like, why it, not? It, thank Doom you're okay. It's huh? such a generic name. <laughs> anyway. Oh, my Doom. Uh, Jason Aaron writes, and as I said before we recorded, is there, so- is there a genre in which Jason, Jason Aaron fails? Crossovers. Well, that's not a genre. That's that's a challenge. That's uh, that's like a, the Iron Man challenge of writing. If you can do a good Marvel DC crossover, you you are a god. You own Battle World. <laughs> but really, the guy did. You know, he did regular superheroes. Mm-hmm. He did uh, comedic superheroes with Wolverine and the X Men. Yeah. He did high octane odd superheroes with uh, Wolverine, Spider Man, Astonishing. Mm-hmm. He did crime stories with Sculpt and Southern Bastards. He did war stories with his first miniseries, The Other Side. You know, he can do, basically, he can work in any genre and he never feels like he's throwing his voice too deep. He's not like Grant Morrison where it's it's always the Grant Morrison voice or Warren Ellis where it's always the Warren Ellis voice. You know, Jason Aaron, he has a voice, but he can adapt it to any need of the story. There's a drawback to that, though, which is it's true that he's capable of tackling practically any type of story. But he tends to do it in the same way. Like, if I have a complaint about World War... I, I enjoyed the issue, certainly, as something new, as something refreshing. But it's hard to argue that there's anything in this issue that you couldn't find in Conan. Right? Well, I, The influences are so clear. And this was a problem that he had also with, like, Wolverine and the X-Men, right? So all of this, these dynamics, it's hard to say, like, where is Aaron in the story? I see. I, I've read a lot of Conan in my days, both mm-hmm. the original stories and love the comic adaptations. Doing a good Conan is hard. The original mm. stories are very good, and it's amazing, you know, how good Robert Howard was at taking such, you know, it was a cliche character even then, and making it work with his prose, with his storytelling, and that's what Aaron is doing here. It's very hard to do this type of narration right, but right. but when he says, you know, uh, 
No matter who or what I have to kill, I will find Polemicus. I will find my, my way home. So swears Archon, Lord of the Warlords. Archon the Magnificent. And then, like, Archon the Utterly Lost. Mm-hmm. That's such a great, you know, voice for the character. Who is, he's boastful, but he sort of realized, I am so screwed. Yeah, but does that not feel like something you would have heard in any barbarian sword and sorcery comic. Not, like, not not if it wasn't done very well. And there's a place for a well done Oh absolutely. Like I, I'm not I'm not criticizing Aaron for the decisions that he makes here simply because, you know, if it wasn't Archon, if he had picked like if this had been Peter Parker, Barbarian <laughs> bar- Barbarian a uh, oh, wandering hero, God, it would no. be weird. Right? It would be the sort of thing where it's like, eh, not quite convincing. The fact that it's Archon, nobody cares about Archon. Yeah. So you can write him as sort of this Conan pastiche, and it's not going to feel incongruous in the way that Jennifer Walters, you know, She-Hulk is like, oh, Doom is my king. And there's a lot of, you know, great little touches here. Again, mm-hmm. you know, the first you think it's a generic barbarian superworld, and then you have the ogres, and okay, they have laser guns. guns. And you're like, gun ogres. Of course. Of course, gun ogres. Yeah, there's a lot of... <laughs> and there's the part where he opens up the map that he drew oh, a free world. amazing. It's just like a little child scrolling, you know, whatever odd thing you meant. And, you know, Jason Aaron is very much in touch with his inner five-year-old in that scene, like... Uh, Man of wisdom, I know anything, and burning rain, and you know, you have little skulls there. Cannibal convoy. <laughs> and they I, eat I'm, people. <laughs> that's a Mad Max thing. He saw Mad oh, Max yeah. and you were like, well, I gotta put it in now. I know like, the issue is like, I know it's three o'clock in the morning. Get up. You remember that map? Put a cannibal convoy in it. Oh, Mike Del Mundo. Mm-hmm. Oh, we love Mike, Mike Del, Del Mundo, Mundo and Electra. And here it's both the same and very different because of the colors, man. Mm-hmm. He's also doing the coloring with, uh, what's his name? Because he's not the sole colorist here. I... Mike, uh, another Mike, I think. Um, oh, Marco De Alfonso mm-hmm. and Mike Del Mundo do the coloring together. And it's, it's so colorful here. And it's not like, you know, Technicolor. It's very saturated watercolor. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. Like when we were talking about Michael Mundo's artwork on Electra, it fit because of the way that Hayden Blackman was telling the story. Right, it was all these dreamlike images, yeah. and you know her, her mental landscape and all that. That was fine. Here, it's like they found another perfect use for him because this island that he's on, this weird world, is so bizarre, yeah. and you have these 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 vistas. You know the mountains, and yeah, the it's snow, avatar-like and, landscape. And when you see like the floating island itself, right, or the dragon that turns yeah. up, or, or it's just stunning, so beautiful, stunning work. And you know, I would joyfully, I would read this as an ongoing. I would read uh, Jason Aaron's Conan the Barbarian ripoff. So I don't, far, yeah. this is the only Secret Wars tie-in that I'm following. Well, I, I enjoyed some of the others, but this is the best, you know, yes. by far. So but, far. Yeah. We still have E for Extinction to come up. And, and the Runaways. Ex- uh, yeah, I guess. Oh, come on! No, because it's... it's. I mean, listen, this came out in the same week that Ghost Racers came out. Right? I have not read Ghost Racers. So disappointing. Really? I mean, it just stripped the heart out of everything that was going on in All New Ghost Isn't Rider. Isn't it the same writer? Yes, which okay. I was so di- so disappointed. It's like it's Robbie Reyes as the protagonist, and his brother is there, but it's like they just took all of the emotional weight out in favor of making it this stupid spectacle, and that was never the 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 appeal of all new Ghost Rider. 
And the fact that, like, Johnny Blaze is there. They brought in, like, everybody. They brought in the, the woman that Jason Aaron introduced who, who sort of, like, disappeared into thin air. The the Western version. Mm. They brought like, all of them there. And it's just, like, again, like, I I keep going back to that problem of because they've all been rewritten, they're all flat. Because you can't build up five different characters in 22 pages, right? Here, for example, the reason that it works so much better is because, you know, what was Archon's history before? <laughs> Who cares, right? Like, you're not... There's thinking, no one to disappoint. Like, Archon is written out of character. Based on, like, where would you go for the source If you version? remember the original Archon, you're now <laughs> at your, you're now the Punisher. You're at yeah, your 60s. exactly. And, or like, the, the antagonist here that turns up. It's like, it's a character that has been around like, in the Marvel universe significance, but you don't go the voice doesn't sound right yeah because you haven't pub- heard that voice in public, 20 years and it's a public domain character no right. she was in uh, Corp Music's Avengers yeah and, and oh, also god, beforehand right oh god that's like 20 years now I am well, so old we're old we're old Tom we have to accept that we're old and but another, again, it's a smart choice and another thing that I liked here even though it's very light on plot It actually felt like a proper read. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, stuff happens. And Because you you're being introduced to yes, this world, right? You took your time reading it. It's not like I've read it in two minutes and that's it. You mm-hmm. know, I've read it and I enjoyed it. It felt meaty. You know, it had substance to it. Yeah. So, thumbs Fantastic. up. I am here for it. Our last number one, which we <laughs> promised we would review. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, I can't. I okay. From the mo- this is what's known like from a reviewer's perspective. This must be what love at first sight feels like. You read the previews text and you're like, I have to read this. I have to review it. I have to like go over every page and just take it in. And you I know, was I was sort of disappointed of the Covenant number one, <laughs> written by Rob Liefeld and run by Men Oric. And you know why? Why I was disappointed? Because Liefeld didn't do the art. No, because it's not terrible. Yes, it is. No, it's just okay-ish. Okay. Yes, it's just um, mediocrely. Uh, listen, the Killer Chef book, Starve, came out this week too. But how often do we get to review a Liefeld number one? Right. Anyway, the plot. Uh, we're in biblical <laughs> times. And it's an untold story of the Bible, as relayed by the prophet Rob Liefeld. Yes. Okay. I like I like prophet. <laughs> I like prophet and Rob Liefeld created prophet. That's See, like saying what Rob Liefeld there? created glory. No, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. Anyway, uh, okay. we're in biblical times, yeah. and the prophet Samuel takes a handful of men. Uh, the prophet Samuel takes a handful of men to basically Ocean Eleven, the camp of the Philistine army who've stolen the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> and that's it. You know, they, they're going to break in, and they're going to take it back. And we have a long, long flashback about the Philistine side of the conflict, mm-hmm. and about the life of the Jews in... Liffield's version of uh, Biblical Times. This is the book that O. Killstrike was making fun of. No. I'll, I'll tell you why. Okay. So, first of all, this is Rob Liefeld writing, right? Yes. The entire book is written in, as you know, exposition speech, right? Everything is like, well, as you know, the Ark of the Covenant is a mighty weapon. Mm-hmm. You were there when it was activated. It's like, well, if that's the case, then why are you telling him that it's a mighty weapon? Presumably he knows that. And then... Um, He's trying to write it in the biblical language. Like, uh, uh, he says, you know, there are four of us, and then the, the, the soldier that they're torturing for the location of the Ark says, you know, 400 of you could not breach the gates of the temple of... Uh, four of you, 400 would not yeah. pierce the gates. And then, like, a few pages later, somebody runs up and says, these boys need medical attention. 
I, that doesn't strike you as slightly incongruous? Slightly, but not not oh that much. It's God. not because nobody's saying ye and thee and thou. It's not like Stanley. Dagon is highest above all but other it's, gods. It's you know it, he's using the word Dagon. He's you sort of had to and you know yeah. storm the castle. But it's not Stanley uh, Thor. It's not. It's but not Stanley Fox Thor is in biblical language. Well, as far as Stanley was concerned, they all spoke the same because right. his his Thor spoke like his Hercules spoke like. He's Black Knight. You know, yeah. all of these ye oldy times. Right. They're using some strange nouns. They're saying maggot instead of, you know, using more modern curses. But mostly it's okay. But then the boys need medical attention. Yeah. And then, okay, so the artwork. It's I wish that it had been Liefeld on art, but everybody here has feet. Mad Horak is better. But let's, I mean, okay, there's a page where you see the first shot of the Temple of Dagon, right? Yeah. Okay. The there are these two statues in front of them. Now, I understand that the statues are supposed to be snakes, but really, dongs. Or possibly ears of corn, or maybe hot dog buns. I don't know, but they're not snakes. <laughs> My major problem was with the character design for the four main uh Heroes, I would assume, because uh-huh. uh, Samuel has, you know, classic Hollywood style. You know, this is how they dress then with the long robes and such. They have mullets, for God's yeah. sake. The merc- mullets. The mercenary guy is also, you know, it's just pants and no shirt on. And the other guys are dressed in, I don't know, Kirby armor for some reason. Segmented armor. Yeah. yeah. That's Roman, you and one moron. Of, and one of them has the cur- the classic no! uh, life. <laughs> Life of face mask. The face guard! They're wearing... That's what Shatterstar used to wear in X-Force in the 90s. Oh, my God. I hadn't even noticed that until now. Wow. And they have goatees, too. Oh, my... But, but, it's not... Again, I don't like what it's doing, but it's not awful. It's so meddingly, boringly okay-ish. It's so... You know, I can't. I can't mock this as like, oh, this is the worst thing ever because we've read. Worse it's not books. the worst thing. We've ever, read worse books on the podcast, you know, in the in recent months. But that's like damning. With and very, I, and very. I'm, great and phrase. I've never believed I would say this in plotting terms, in presentation terms. Rob Liefeld is now better than G. Willow Wilson on A Force. No. Yes. No. And uh, because uh, A Force no. made so little sense storytelling wise, and this. Is at least you know comprehensible but in its presentation. No, but the problem with that argument is that a force is an event comic. There are forces working upon it, and forces that are shaping the writing that would not be present in another title. Not a fair comparison, right? Well, if you were looking at another, well, this one also has you know it has what? to it has to answer to God basically. <laughs> Why can't the Westboro it's, it's, Baptist Church ever picket someone who actually it, no, deserves it? Right now. It has the the stole the ark, which wasn't in the Bible, but in in terms, <laughs> but in terms of basic what he's telling, it it doesn't appear to be inglorious bastards. It's not the revelation of he's deconstructing the Bible. It's just a straight up action story in biblical times, and it's that it's not very different from any Hollywood movie about the Bible in the nineteen fifties, sixties, seventies. Today, no, today. How long well, ago today was you Exodus? Noah. Or Exodus. Oh, God, not Exodus. But you yeah, yeah. forgotten about that. Yeah, but, see, that's a good example. Yeah. But, like, okay, would you watch Exodus for fun? No. No, right? So, But, uh, but I would watch... I've watched uh, uh, Ben-Hur for fun. It was okay. Ben-Hur has, like, 
campy appeal, though. It's like 70s, yeah. you laugh at it, okay. Like, nobody watches it and it's like, oh, what a masterpiece of cinematic theater. Well, it won 11 Oscars, so for a lot of people, it was a masterpiece. Okay. I, do, I disagree, you know. I, I also think it's, you know, at best, it can't be fun, but whatever. As far as I'm concerned, this, it's not what I was hoping for because it's not bad. It's not terrible. It's just, <laughs> it's just boring. I, I mean, I, I don't, was, I'm not, I'm not, awful. I'm not gonna read it, but I'm not like, oh, I find something to laugh at. It's not, it's not, it's not mock worthy. I, you I know, was Life of Ble- Blesses Art is trying. It's not hack work. It's not like I would do a ripoff of Wolverine and stick it on a page. I don't think that you could ever accuse Rob Liefeld of doing anything, like even in his entire bibliography, that he did it not earnestly. The reason he's a source of parody is because he wholeheartedly believes in the things that he does. It's just that he, as a consequence of that, he never has the self-awareness to be like, so, I just drew this guy with, like, muscles on top of muscles and no genitals and the feet of a ballerina. And that seems fine, right? That seems okay. So, he never he never picks up on it, and that's why people laugh but at But you him. don't have a deer because you have Matt Horak, which is, he's not good, but he's not awesome. Dongs! Statues of snake dongs. I don't know. Um, no, okay, Ma- Matt Horak is better than Rob Liefeld as an artist. That's not saying much, but, you know, we do have to acknowledge that. The writing here, I just think, like... You have two panels here, which are basically feet. And I I imagine Rob Liefeld, when he was writing, and he was like, and you can see... Please include their feet. You can see his feet in (laughs) sandals, and they're properly sized. Uh, I don't know. It, it, It reads like... Though the other parts of the comics are very intended on not showing feats. So maybe it was like, this man horror guy, he's better than me, but can maybe he... Maybe don't I, showcase that. No, but, but I'm not sure. Like, can he do... Quentin Tarantino no, no, leave the feet no, 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 like, he, I, I imagine life of... He's better than me, okay? But I don't want to overdo it. I'm, <laughs> I'll ask him to draw feet twice. Twice. I, I don't want to kill the poor guy. Like the because there are limits. cut off at the knees. Um, oh, wait, see, there are more feet here. I was wrong. There, there are plenty of feet in this <laughs> issue. And so like, it passes I more just, feet. I just feel... You can see these giant guys' feet. Giant, not only do you have feet here, you have giant feet. Like, yeah, huge up, feet. Up to scale with regular size feet. There you That's go. That's a feetful issue. Isn't that nice? Yes. So, but, but look, there you have the, the statues. Tell me what that looks like to you, Tom. Does that not look like corn? No, <laughs> it looks like snakes. Ears of corn. What? Come on. And, uh, I just, I mean, I find this sort of, okay, so there are a few things to laugh at at this book. It's not the worst thing we've ever read by a long shot, but no. on the other hand, you wouldn't read it. Like, you're no. not coming back for issue two. No. Um, I just find it weird that Image is publishing something like well, this. Well, it has to because Rob Liefeld is one of the owners of Image. That's the thing, isn't it? Like, <laughs> Yeah. No, it's a vanity project. and uh, Is it a vanity project if you own the publisher's house? Yes, because... Just and if because it's it, started just by you... you can doesn't mean you should see Eric Stevenson and they're not like us. But... I haven't seen it. It's terrible. Oh. Okay. Uh, <laughs> spoiler, it's awful. Yeah, but um, Eric Stevenson has so much, you know, good credit on his Carmine meter because sure. he brought us all the great out, so he could, he could publish whatever he wants. He could be writing Covenant, and we would be like, <laughs> well, it's terrible, but on the other hand, without him, we wouldn't have Chu and no, Saga, okay, so... You know, we can forgive him. I mean, really, like, if Rob Liefeld were any other creator, this would just be sort of... It's just like Stanley, you know, yeah. no matter what Stanley does nowadays, and... 
let's be honest, in the last 30 years of bad, bad writing, mm. he did Spider-Man, he did Fantastic Four. Sure. I you mean, know, he, he, he does those... It doesn't matter. He, it doesn't he matter. He does those, those newspaper strips with Spidey, right? And you read it and it's like, the best that you can say about it is that it's inoffensive. Or, you know, like one of the, the comments that keep coming up when people talk about Ms. Marvel is that part of the reason she's so popular is because it's so unlike the tone of the Marvel Universe today. Like, it's a breath of fresh air on some level. So you're reading a version of Spider-Man that is with Mary Jane Parker and, you know, is living his life and not too many horrible things happen because, you know, Stanley is, you know, more of a lighter writer. And it's not great. But on the other hand, it's like I could see myself reading that just because, wow, wouldn't that be, like, different? Hmm. Speaking of differences and spiders, oh, you want to move on to trade review? I would like to move first on arc to review technically uh, first because arc we, review. we don't have the trade yet. Yet, so I pitched this one. This is we'll be talking about Spider Gwen one through five by. Isn't that zero two five? Because oh, you sort you're of including to, the Edge of Spider-Verse? You sort of had to read the, you know, Edge of Spider-Verse 2, Issue 0, because Issue 1 is such a direct con- continuation um, of it. Well, there's a recap page, to be completely yeah, fair. Well, okay, well, for okay. The, we can include the Edge of yeah. Spider-Verse into this review. Uh, so this is by Jason Latour, art by Robbie Rodriguez and Rico Renzi. Can we talk about the title first? Because, no. It's a bad title. It's a terrible title. I mean, look, I know we already have Jessica Drew's Spider-Woman, but Spider-Gwen... That's what the fans were calling her. That's not what she calls herself. Yeah. And even setting that aside, like Spider Gwen, Spider Gwen, Spider really? Gwen it does whatever a Gwen can, which is <sighs> what can a Gwen do? Die. Um, well, I mean, Being a rock band. That's what she's known for. Uh, I just not anymore. They could have come up with like Spider Girl, Spider Woman, the Spider. I mean, listen, Spider-Man has had so many different identities by now, she could probably have picked one. Scarlet Spider. There you go. Prodigy. I mean, Tom DeFalco had um, Felicia Hardy's daughter as the Scarlet Spider at some point. So, sure, you she know. She could have been Aranya. It could have been worse. Oh. <laughs> oh okay. <laughs> see, see. We're not going to talk about that. It could have been worse. So, let's get into it. Okay. We, we've talked about this character on the podcast before, but we never directly reviewed it. During the Spider-Verse event last year... There were all these alternate realities of Spider-Man, Spider-Women, and all that. And one of them was a world in which Gwen Stacy was bitten by the spider instead of Peter Parker. To say that it was incredibly well-received would be an understatement. It was popular before the first issue came out. You know, Mm -hmm. people just saw the design. According to Jason Latour, this book exists because the character was so incredibly popular. Yeah, they didn't wait. You know, none of the other Spider-Verse characters got a title... The moment Spider-Verse uh, number two was, Edge of mm-hmm. Spider-Verse number yeah. two came out, it was basically announced, yeah, she's getting an ongoing now. D- right. Based solely on the response for that. That's rare. That's so incredibly Extremely rare. rare. Now, I didn't read Spider-Verse, so I don't know what went on over there, but the first issue proper of Spider-Gwen lays it out very nicely. Take note, DC. Um, it's one of those rare situations where you have this crossover event, and then a character is seen as responding to it. Because what happens in the context of this story is that Gwen met all of these different versions of Spider-Man, and she interpreted them as being successful. So her motivation, as Latour lays it out in the first issue, is she's not going to be the spider that failed, right? She is going to push herself harder as a superhero because she's seen all of these 
better versions of right Spider Man or Spider Woman or Spider People. That's what drives her, and her. You know, the, there's a moment where she she has this crisis of confidence, and the person who shows up to cheer her on in her imagination is Spider Ham. Is Peter Porker, <laughs> which again, like it's it's a uh, it's subtle because she doesn't want to imagine Peter Parker because in her world, Peter Parker died. Right? He he, he became a villain. He died. became the lizard because he wanted to be special like her. And it cost him his life. And, you know, that's the thing. That, that's her Uncle Ben, right? That's her crisis of confidence. Now, so far, so good, right? So the things that, that Edge of Spider-Verse established going into the story was that it was Gwen Stacy, mm-hmm. right? Her father was still alive. Um, she reveals her identity to him at the end of the Edge of Spider-Verse, right? So yes. that's her support cast. Yes. She's also in a rock band. With uh, an all-female rock band with Gloria Grant and... Mary Jane. Mary Jane is the lead singer. They're, they're, they're the, called the Mary, the Mary Janes. Janes. And in an interesting bit Her of... father is a cop and he lets her be in a band called sure. the Mary Janes. Well, it's well, New York. It's Mary Jane Watson, though, so it's sort of like... Yeah. Well, you know what they're meaning. Sure, but... Okay. She gets a pass because it's her name. Um, and in fact, they, they sort of want to change... When they try to replace Gwen as a drummer with a guy, that like, we should call it the Mary Jims. <laughs> uh, so... All that said, right, it starts off very promising because you assume that, you know, because it's Gwen Stacy, because she has this different life, because the the mainstream Gwen Stacy never had that kind of independent, like, you know, she's a rock star, she's a, she never had that. As far as most people were concerned, her importance was strictly in being the first w- woman in the refrigerator. Right. She died to to make the hero right. move forward. And I'm assuming that part of this also comes from the fact that she was the main love interest in the Amazing Spider-Man movies. Well, yeah. It might have played a part in I like think rekindling ama- her popularity. The, the Amazing Spider-Man movies basically you well, you can't you can't blame the, these movies of making anything popular because they bombed, baby right. bombed. But it did and, bring and, her back. Yeah, they chose her mostly because she wasn't Mary Jane. They yeah. had to use someone else because And Emma Stone did a great job. That might yeah, be part yeah. of it. I don't know. I I I I'm... They took the redhead Emma Stone to play a blonde woman in the original movies. They took the blonde to play the redhead. That's <laughs> okay. just weird. Well, but there's an incongruity here that really, I think, past issue three or four just took me right out of the story. And we had this problem before. Spider-Gwen, as she was originally presented, one word, right? Different. So different from the mold of Peter Parker that we had become so accustomed to that that uh, Chip Zdarsky was making fun of me. Uncle Ben, no, no, it's all my fault, right? She was grieving for Peter, but not in that sort of overwrought way. And yet, just as we saw with Silk, right, I have the same problem that the story can't resist pulling her in line with the formula, right? By the end of the arc, she's basically been confronting her guilt over and over again and failing the people in her life. She doesn't even get any kind of qualified feel-good moment at the end. The end of the arc It's felt, just a slog of the, like... The end of the arc felt so weird because I was like, that's the end of an arc? It's... Are you sure that's the end of no, the arc? it's typical of, of Spider-Man, right? That's what you would expect for Peter Parker, who never gets a lucky break, right? So the arc ends, and he's sort of like, everything is crap, but I'm just going to pick myself back up and, and go out yeah. there again, right? That's Peter Parker. Why does it have to be Gwen Stacy, too? Like, this, I've already... They've neutralized 
the thing that was working most in their favor because now she's exactly like Peter Parker, aside from the fact that she's a blonde girl. Like, that is the only... Well, there what? are a lot... She has no personal life, right? Mm. She even has this sit-down with May Parker where, like, she has to confront her grief all over again. And it's just... It's so... Her, she has this dysfunctional relationship with her father who knows her secret, and yet... They don't talk, right? Like, he, he doesn't have the opportunity... He covers up for her, but he doesn't have the opportunity to be there for her. It also has the problem of, you know, Marvel Universe alternative uh, universes in, in general in which you have to... A lot of the things that they change seem so arbitrary and so, like, wink-wink in the reader, like, Captain Frank Castle <laughs> wearing the Skull T-shirt even though he's a cop. Right. And starts fighting Spider-Gwen in the middle of the day with batons. And Matt Murdock works for Daredevil. Uh, no, not for Daredevil. For the oh, King. for King Bates, That sorry. I liked. The Matt Murdock as a villain here, I really like because he's yeah. so incredibly creepy here. Mm-hmm. And so amazingly in control. And it's an inverse of the usual uh, Spider-Man-Daredevil relations in which, yeah. you know, Daredevil is like the responsible adult guy most of the time. And here he's like... He's like almost like the inverse of the creepy mentor. He's snarky. Yeah. Like when he's interrogating the vulture, so he has all these, you know, he's making fun of him to mm-hmm. his face. And, you know, he has this also, like, because you know that he's associated with the kingpin, you know he's dangerous. Yeah. And yet when he presents himself, it's always like, oh, Spider-Gwen, we should, like, shake hands. You know, I'm a huge fan. And it's like, you, you get this creep vibe. From oh, yeah. Him. That's... I, I would like to see more of that guy. And... The real, for me, the real star of this thing appears in issue five. Felicia Hardy. Uh, She's basically Ben Dad here. They transformed her into Ben Dad. That was why. It was was so so weird. It was so weird. And And the art makes her look like Storm. She has like this white mohawk. Yes. For one panel, she has the white mohawk, and then she has the weird uh, helmet thing. It's so odd. The art here is terrible, I, I have to say. What? Like, there's a page in not issue terrib- four it's where the same she's pro- sitting with May, and May has like two completely different faces. And it's two not panels. terrible. It's the I think it's the same problem as with uh, Midnighter. They he overthinks it. The design work is great on some of the characters, but a lot of the action scenes seem to be overfought and I, overdone. I mean, look, the At design of five. Gwen's costume is amazing. I mean, yes. cosplayers jumped right on that, and justifiably so. But, I mean, just the inconsistency in the faces, I mean, I'm pretty sure... Like, there's a scene where she comes to visit the Parkers, right, because she's confronting the guilt of, you know, what happened to Peter, even yeah. though, apparently, like, she blames herself for it, even though it wasn't her fault. And there's this panel where she's sitting and having, like coffee with May and she goes like she has two completely different faces at the end she has something that I can only describe as derp face like her eyes are different sizes her nose is gigantic and she's she's not even looking at Gwen she's sort of looking cross-eyed past Gwen it's just it's really bad you're the guys who chose that you're the guy who chose to work on this arc and you're more negative (laughs) than me I'm so disappointed no it's true I mean okay Inconsistent art or, you know, like, problematic art, I could forgive. The sin here, like, the the thing that completely deflated my expectations and really, like, took it out, took me out of it, is that Gwen as a character is Peter Parker, basically. 
That mm. I mean, that's what it is. She's being tortured with guilt, with, you know, she can't get past it. She wants to do the right thing, but, you know, she's down on her luck. She can't catch a break. She's, you know, her, her life as Spider-Gwen ends up compromising her ability to be with the girl band, right? Like, she can't be reliable, so they kick her out, and then they want her back in. It's like, it's the, you're doing the same thing. And the only reason Spider-Gwen was appealing as a concept was on the idea that maybe she didn't have to be exactly like Peter Parker. And this was the exact same problem that I had with Silk. The fact that, you know, she was, she was locked in a bunker for 10 years. She has these powers, but she uses them differently. She, she's this young girl. Why is she having the same story progression as Spider-Man? We've already seen it. We've seen it rebooted. We've seen it debooted. We saw Ultimate Spider-Man. I mean, you know what? It's more outrageous to say this, but it's true. Ultimate Spider-Man, as he was presented like, you know, 15-year-old Parker back then, was more different than Spider-Gwen is to mainstream Spider-Man. And that's wrong. Like, when you are, are creating a version of a character that is more like the original than the reboot, I mean, where's the originality here? Where's the, the quality? Can Why would I read... if Okay, if I'm tired of Core Spider-Man, right? Which I guess, I mean, it's a fair enough argument well, to make. Well, Core right? Spider-Man at, at this point, you know, Dan Slott is running it for years, and it's so very different from the Stan Lee version. You know, he works in a giant lab, and he right. does, and he has cross-universal adventures. Like it or hate it, it's very different. Take a different perspective, right? Elliot Kalan's interpretation of Spider-Man. Okay. This was a character that, as Kalan presented him, was comic relief. Fine. But comic relief doesn't require, right, Uncle Ben, uh, Uncle Ben... You don't need that. Okay, we brought up this comparison, right? But really, that bears thinking about. May Parker from, from MC2, right? Spider-Girl, was a completely different character. She was, like, to the core, she was written in a way that was different from her father. And that was what made her interesting, right? Because suddenly you had a character here who didn't have to do the whole great power, great responsibility, you know, constantly chasing your guilt, right? That, that Jewish guilt, right? You, you <laughs> let, you let the guy who killed your uncle go, despite the fact that you couldn't have known that it was going to happen, but it happened anyway, and you're guilty about it, and everything that you do comes from that guilt. You will sell your wife to Satan because of that guilt, right? Fine. That's Spider-Man. It's old. It's tired. But that's what it is. Why do the alternate versions, right? Why does Gwen Stacy have to have that arc as well? I I think there is a question to be asked. Can this be avoided? At this yes. point, the Spider-Man story, is the original Spider-Man story, is such an uber story for young superheroes in general. That it overtakes, and it's almost like the the comics version of the monument, like the Joseph Campbell, mm. you know, Journey Zero, the Spider Man, the Spider Man story. The young person learns about the world via tragedy and has to take responsibility and become thus become an adult. Sure, but the trick with the monomyth is that that is the archetype. That doesn't mean that every story has to follow that paradigm. On the contrary, if you're aware of of, of that pattern, you could subvert it. Well, if you want a different take on the paradigm, you have Miss Marvel. Right, but why does, like, I say this being a huge fan of Miss Marvel, but, like, why do we always have to go to Miss Marvel for it? Like, because every 10 years it's someone else. You know, 10 years ago it was Jamie Reyes Blue Beetle. Jamie Reyes Blue Beetle. And 10 years before that it was, God, I don't know, Nova. 
but those then, characters no succeeded. 10 years before that it was Dark Horse and then on. it was Nova but, but look at Jaime Reyes for example yes. right that's a that's a fantastic example. Look at Robbie Reyes also. Look at look at these legacy characters. Well, Robbie Reyes we've talked about, and I wouldn't agree it's a success story of well, anything. Okay, so let's let's stick with Jaime Reyes. For okay, example. Yeah, the better Reyes. It's hard to argue with the notion that part of the reason he succeeds as well as he does is because he's not like Ted Cord. No, not in any way. Right, the fact that he had the identity. It's like saying, you know, I've been I've been rereading Mark Wade's Flash lately. Mm-hmm. You cannot say that Wally West was anything like Barry Allen, personality-wise, right? They were different people. They had different ways of dealing with things. They had different interpretations of their their world and their place in that world. It is the difference that defines them. Because if you make a success, uh, like an alternate version of a character or a successor who is exactly like the original, then what have you gained? You're just telling the same story again, right? X-23. She's not like Wolverine, right? Um, I think it was Kyle and, and Yost who, who brought uh, her into Craig, the comics. Craig Kyle. Craig and... Kyle and, and Christopher Yost. Yes. They brought her into the comics, but when they told her origin story, they made sure that, like, she was not like, like Logan. Well, she was such she, a blank slate. She was a blank slate deliberately. Like, yeah. this was someone whose mind was tampered with. She was abused. She was, you know, she was brainwashed. She went through this entire process, and when she came out of it and became, like, a member of the X-Men, she was not Wolverine. And when you saw her in action, she didn't behave like Wolverine. So that, so people could gravitate towards her in a different way, and here it's like, I don't know why I would continue reading this because I came to this book trying to get away from the mold of Peter Parker. And here it is again. And that's what made it such a crushing disappointment for me. On top of all of that, I don't even know what the fate of this book is because the last panel says to be continued, but the letter pages that Jason Latour writes afterwards is, well, farewell, Spider-Gwen fans, this is the final issue. Well, like we, we talked about before the podcast, I assume they're going to relaunch after Secret Wars with a different name. That's the Marvel way. It's a successful book. They're not going to cancel it swiftly. My guess, it's going to be Spider-Woman, and she's going to be in the Marvel Universe, and the actual Spider-Woman title will go to where all Spider-Woman titles, <laughs> starring Jessica Drew, went. I'm sorry, you know. Poor Jessica Drew. She has fans, that's okay. She has a new redesign, that's okay. She's not She's not selling very well, and in corporate speak, that's very, very bad. No, but she should be on a team somewhere. I mean, She'll be, you give know. Give her a chance. People. Ben dislikes her, show, so she'll be Iron Man's date, I assume, oh, for some God. reason. God. Uh, Iron Man fans, you have my sympathies. But anyway, so this was just really a huge letdown for me. I mean, what did you ultimately think about it? Like, would you uh, keep I, reading? No, but I wasn't expecting that much, so I couldn't be let down. I thought, I well, I thought it was an okay book. It had some really nice touches. I <clears throat> I like the Daredevil. I like you know the the, the Matt Murder Doc. He might act Matt Murder Doc. That, <laughs> that was a great moment. I should hash I should hashtag this. He said he might be Daredevil. Like you yeah. never see him in costume, but he has the powers. I think there's a panel flashback where we see him in the black costume in the classic. Uh, right. Uh, well, and I I like the black cat simply because she's such a she's been that here. Yeah. With with a backing band of with a backing rock band. <laughs> That's it's so out of place. So she was the daughter of, of a world famous thief. And she was in the same high school with these girls. And she's what? a singer. At the same, and she, and she's on a, you know, a whole life. She's bat, she's Batman Bendette. She's, she's the a- misfits from Gem. 
to, to the holograms. Yeah, yeah, that's she's such a weird grab bag of things that I find I know. it. I find it oddly <laughs> compelling. It's such a random. It's such a random collection of tropes. But like that would be the sort of thing where I wish that had been applied across the scale. I, I would. I, mean? I would. I would. I would prefer to read her. You know, a Black Cat versus yeah. Daredevil book. That would based be on that. Based on the last issue here. Yeah. I mean, like rock singer by day. Burglar by Night. Vengeance in the middle. Vengeance in the middle. <laughs> vengeance in the middle with like a backing uh, band of people who are dressed like French cats. <laughs> you know, that's clever. But like, why wasn't any of that applied to Gwen? And why was it only in the last issue? It's felt so dense. <laughs> it, it's just, you know, four issues of Gwen and Spider-Ham and the Vulture. And then suddenly, oh, it's the Black Cat. Yeah, it's like featuring suddenly Gwen- remember this book should be fun. The Black Cat featuring uh, Spider-Gwen for the last issue. Yeah. It was odd. Yeah. Not not bad, just odd, odd, odd. And I like odd, so... I give it one thumb up. No. I, and yeah. if this book comes back, I would only be willing to check it out if it had a different creative team, because I really feel like Latour dropped the ball here. I really feel like of all the possibilities that he had to consciously take a different approach... He chose to make her like Peter Parker, and that's like the one thing that I can't abide, because why even bother then? You know, what would be the point? So that was a letdown. Uh, Shall we finish? Yeah. Well, these were the reviews. I was Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. And this was the Smorgasbord. Bon appetit.